Today's Dhamma talk is entitled Wisdom Part One. And uh, with this Dhamma talk, we will embark on a new series of talks, namely centering mostly around uh, different aspects of uh, wisdom, in particular uh, insights, uh, some um, aspects of the insight knowledges. And uh, what we shall do during the forthcoming days, once in a while uh, there'll be a talk on Satipatthana, where we shall pursue the topic of uh, the four establishments of mindfulness, and we shall look at uh, the contemplation of the body, and then of feelings, and so on and so forth. And uh, this then... Uh, will be alternated with occasional or with uh, uh, certain talks on aspects of uh, wisdom. And in this way, you will learn more on what is actually meant by the four Satipatthanas, but you will also then have, uh, through the wisdom series, a way of uh, well, checking your meditation experiences and uh, maybe coming to a confirmation that uh, what you've experienced in your practice uh, indeed uh, uh, has some you know, textual references and uh, that it's not you know, happening uh, totally out of context. And so today we shall... First of all, look at some you know, general aspects connected with wisdom, and you know, then we shall you know, take a closer look at uh, a very you know, beginning you know, form of insight uh, knowledge. Now, before, before, during, and after you know, the time of uh, the Buddha, in uh, the Vedic tradition, there are three you know, forms of uh, acquisition of wisdom were um, well popular, and they still are you know, popular. And the first uh, such way is the one that used by you know, the Brahmins, namely to you know, depend on you know, the oral transmission of. Uh, you know, saying certain religious sayings from one tri- from one generation to the next, and this is said you know, to you know, uh, then um, well be a form of uh, wisdom or to lead to you know, wisdom. And then in the Upanishads, we have uh, a slightly different approach, namely uh, that you know, through logical thinking or logical analysis, one uh, acquires uh, wisdom. Logical analysis of uh, the texts of the Upanishads. And uh, then there are a number of uh, religious followers who uh, emphasize more the actual meditation practice and who see meditation as a way of uh, acquiring intuitive uh, wisdom. So uh, this is uh, the 
Vedic background. And now let's see what the Buddha's position is towards all of this. And the Buddha was somewhat critical of acquiring religious wisdom through the transmission, oral transmission of religious texts. And the reason for this is that one may, having memorized something, one may remember it wrongly, and thus the transmission of the text becomes faulty. Or one might memorize something that is wrong to start with. Now, in the case of acquiring wisdom through logical analysis of the religious texts, this too may be faulty. At times, a certain way of logical reasoning may seem quite sound, but later on it turns out not to be so. And then, sometimes, through logical reasoning, one comes to a certain conclusion that seems rather untrue, yet this may then turn out to be the truth. So for these two reasons, the Buddha was also critical of this logical reasoning. And the Buddha's approach was to the acquisition of wisdom was mostly through through the meditation practice and in this way gaining intuitive wisdom. However, he was well aware of the limitations of this too. And by, for instance, undertaking the samatha meditation, so serenity or calm meditation, one may come to certain to certain understanding, and yet this may be a wrong understanding. So it's easily to misinterpret certain experiences, and in the Brahmajana Sutta. Uh, a discourse uh, given uh, by the Buddha on uh, 64 wrong uh, views. Uh, he uh, makes it uh, clear that uh, um, such kind of uh, knowing leads to, or may lead to, uh, certain uh, wrong views, if one is not uh, careful. Now, the Buddha himself favored uh, this uh, third way of acquiring uh, wisdom through meditation. And in the Samyutta Nikaya, the 55th uh, Samyutta Discourses 55, 62, and 63, we find a rather short discourse that uh, speaks uh, to uh, the acquisition of wisdom, panya patilabha karana, in the Pali scriptural language. 
And the Buddha says, bhikkhus or meditators, these four things, when developed and cultivated, lead to greatness of wisdom. What for? And the first one is given as an association with superior persons or persons who've gained already a certain amount of wisdom themselves. And secondly, hearing the true Dhamma, and as number three, careful attention. Now, up to here, all is certain good. Unfortunately, uh, there are a number of people who seek the association of uh, the wise, and uh, they then happily listen to discourses on the Dhamma over and over and over again. And to add a little bit, they are also very happy to perform acts of generosity, dana. They're also quite happy to observe the five precepts or the eight precepts. Yet, they are then unwilling when it comes to another point. And this is what? Sitting. I mean? Sitting. Sitting. Yes, indeed. The actual, doing the actual practice. And so, having, having heard the Dhamma or being in association with some um, wise person, then having heard the Dhamma, paying careful attention to it, one needs to take it one step further, namely by actually putting what one has heard into practice. And so when one does so, then the Buddha concludes his short discourse, when these four things, when developed and cultivated, they lead to greatness of wisdom. And in a similar discourse, he says that these four things will lead to the realization of the fruit of stream entry. So if the fruit of stream entry is to be realized, then, or will be realized, then it implies that path knowledge will also be gained, since the two are connected. Now, the Venerable Sadhupanita points frequently to a series of factors that contribute to the arising of wisdom. And those factors start with some initial faith, faith or confidence. And we all you know, start, you know, start in the Buddha's teachings in one way or another, maybe by first uh, hearing a certain uh, a statement and it resonates with our heart, it makes sense, and we feel then you know, encouraged to you know, proceed and to you know, investigate uh, further. Or for some, an initial Faith and confidence may arise you know, through reading a Dhamma book or through you know, hearing you know, the you know, stories of some convincing stories of some you know, f- friends or by participating in a you know, Dhamma you know, discussion. 
Now, once certain, you know, this initial faith has certain arisen, it's important to then nourish it. And certain initial faith will lead to a desire to practice chanda in the Pali scriptural language. And so this thing here is a chanda or a desire to do goods. And this then will automatically lead to the exertion of effort. So one actually then gives it a try and then together with aiming will one observe, one will aim at the predominant objects and then also propel the mind towards the predominant object again and again. This then in turn leads to the arising of mindfulness, sati, which if sustained will lead to a unification of the mind. In other words, concentration will be there and this finally leads to the arising of wisdom, banya. Now, with regard to the acquisition of uh, wisdom, the Buddha speaks of three kinds. And those are known in the Pali scriptural language as Suttamaya Banya, as Chintamaya Banya, and Bhavanamaya Banya. Now, you will see there's a certain similarity between these uh, three and you know, the three you know, ways of uh, acquisition of uh, you know, wisdom as mentioned uh, earlier on uh, in you know, regard to the Vedic tradition. So, Suttameya Banya is uh, gaining you know, wisdom through hearing. Sutta is hearing, literally hearing. And so listening to a Dhamma talk would certainly fall under this, or listening to some, um, some class in college or at certain university, some lecture. And so then, but reading a book also comes under this because one hears, one receives. Uh, knowledge from some other uh, person through the form of a book. And so this is kind of a knowledge that is not one's own knowledge, but uh, comes from uh, others. So knowledge that is being passed on from one person to another. Then, as the second form, we have Chintamaya Banya, which is Banya is wisdom, and Chinta is thinking, and Maya is based on. So knowledge or wisdom based on thinking. And this is somewhat similar to the logical thinking of practiced in the Upanishads. And this is a form of acquisition of knowledge or wisdom that is very common in highly industrialized countries where 
you know, especially in the scientific world, where you know, through thinking, you know, through analysis, careful analysis, one uh, then um, uh, gets at certain, certain you know, results or comes to a certain uh, understanding. However, having said this, just you know, through hearing you know, something or through thinking, one cannot uh, really penetrate uh, you know, the nature of uh, the Dhamma, in particular not aspects uh, such as anatta, and uh, in particular not aspects such as the third and fourth noble truth and in connection with this uh, Nibbāna. So you can read a thousand books on Nibbāna, you will still not know what is meant by it because it is so different from all of our ordinary experiences. Then as the third, we have Bhavana Meyapanya, which is wisdom based on um, bhavana mental development and this is what we're doing here and through this kind of uh, um, of an approach one get one gets at not just a worldly type of wisdom but an intuitive type of wisdom which uh, is uh, very transformative in uh, nature now with regard to wisdom, the Buddha has said, which is recorded in Dhammapada verse 282, indeed, wisdom is born of meditation. Without meditation, wisdom is lost. Knowing this twofold path of gain and loss of wisdom, one should conduct oneself so that wisdom may arise. Now, in order to gain a better understanding of what is meant by wisdom, let us uh, take a look at uh, the Dhamma Sangani, which is the first uh, Abhidhamma work. And uh, its way of procedure is to explain the different uh, Abhidhamma terms by way of uh, synonyms. Synonyms uh, that are being used uh, by the Buddha and uh, that we can find uh, all over the text. So, uh, wisdom is the same thing then as understanding, as scrutiny of impermanence, of unsatisfactoriness and non-self of phenomena. And it's the same as uh, then uh, refinement in knowledge, discriminative knowledge, and uh, then reflection, and uh, then it is said that wisdom destroys defilements, and uh, there is mention of clear comprehension, sampajanya, which is an incipient or initial type of wisdom, which oftentimes gets mentioned together with mindfulness sati. And then we have the faculty of wisdom, the power of wisdom, and then non-bewilderment and investigation of states. Now, some 
of uh, the common Pali terms for uh, synonymous uh, Pali terms for wisdom are, wisdom itself is Panya, and uh, then Jnana means insight, knowledge. Then we have Amoha, which is, Moha is delusion, Amoha is non-delusion, absence of delusion. Then we have Dhamma which is the investigation of states, um, namely the second enlightenment factor, which boils down to wisdom. And Samadeti stands for right view, it's the first path factor of the Eightfold Noble Path. And Vidya is, well, the is vision or knowledge, and the opposite of Avijja, uh, ignorance. Now, many kinds of uh, wisdom can be distinguished one I could say that wisdom is one in the sense that its essence is the is the or its essence is or its characteristic is of penetrating the individual essence of of an object, and wisdom can be said to be twofold as mundane wisdom and supermundane wisdom. So. Any kind of wisdom that pertains to our sense sphere, consciousness, ordinary seeing, process, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking, and so on, this is mundane wisdom. And different from this is the wisdom that pertains to the unconditioned, namely, uh, that uh, arises in connection with uh, uh, path knowledge and certain uh, fruition knowledge. The mundane uh, wisdom has to do with conditioned certain uh, phenomena, phenomena that are conditioned by impermanence, by unsatisfactoriness, and by non-self. And the Bhattisambhida Magga, the path of discrimination, even speaks of 73 kinds of uh, uh, wisdom, and certain 67 kinds are shared uh, by ordinary you know, disciples, and six are not shared by the disciples. The last six uh, um, are available only to a Buddha, and certain uh, they uh, will cover things like omniscient knowledge and uh, then uh, the ability to know others' uh, disposition and uh, so on. Now, wisdom in short uh, could be defined as knowing things as they truly are and its characteristic is, as mentioned just a few moments ago, namely to penetrate uh, objects according to their intrinsic or true or essential nature. And the function of uh, wisdom is to illuminate an object of observation or 
you know, to illuminate the objective uh, field. And uh, thus, it is said to, to dispel the darkness of ignorance. So, wisdom is uh, figuratively referred to as a light, the light of wisdom which dispels uh, the darkness of uh, ignorance. Now, when we first uh, meditate, and uh, the wisdom has not arisen yet, and then we may observe the rising and falling or some other predominant object and uh, yet not really know or understand its uh, nature. And so, uh, this then changes not only when the wisdom comes into play, and with this we will then make out you know, the you know, different qualities of uh, the object. And please do understand that we have to start with very basic things. So when we observe an object like the rising movement of the abdomen, then knowing the tension in the rising movement, or knowing the stiffness in it, or the tightness in it, and then maybe knowing the relaxation, or then the contraction at the end of the fawning movement. This, uh, these are already aspects of wisdom. One uh, discerns uh, the nature, the specific nature of uh, the respective uh, object. And don't think that something esoteric has to uh, happen. It's as simple as this. And then, however, of course, in, in time, um, our you know, wisdom becomes uh, more complex and uh, then sooner or later you know, some intuitive insight or intuitive wisdom into you know, the nature of uh, you know, these sort of phenomena, material and uh, mental phenomena uh, will arise. So we have to start with very simple things. So uh, wisdom is there when we truly know you know, the sensations that are occurring and wisdom is absent when we don't know, you know the features of uh, a predominant object. And the manifestation of uh, wisdom is given as non-bewilderment or as absence of uh, confusion. And it's not uncommon to hear you know, meditators during you know, an interview saying, oh, well, I've tried to observe such and such an object, but I just couldn't see anything, and uh, I ended up confused. And so that would be a clear case of uh, absence of uh, uh, wisdom. Now, two proximate causes uh, are you know, being given for the arising of uh, wisdom, and what do you think those are? Huh? Mindfulness. Uh, in an extended sense, yes, yeah, but that's, uh, yeah, there are still closer uh, uh, proximate causes. Who knows? Samadhi. Ah, good. Samadhi, which means concentration. Yes, indeed. The unification of the mind or the collection of the mind, which is certain uh, concentration, is certain, uh, you know, the proximate cause you know, for the arising of uh, wisdom. And as such, you know, it's, uh, it deserves the term proximate or nearest cause because it's nearer you know, to you know, wisdom than mindfulness. Naturally, mindfulness uh, is, is an earlier you know, factor. 
And so the other approximate cause for the arising of wisdom is given as a wise attention, namely geared towards the development of wisdom. So if again and again we observe objects with an, um, well, with an approach or with an inclination to bring about wisdom, to gain some deeper understanding about the object, then naturally wisdom is bound to arise. Now, for a general understanding, Many kinds of wisdom are around. Earlier on it was mentioned that you know, the Patisamita Magga speaks of 73 you know, kinds. And so the Visuddhi Magga you know, points out uh, that uh, there are many sorts of wisdom and they have different aspects. And so what, are in, what is intended here is uh, you know, understanding or wisdom in connection uh, with uh, insight knowledge and associated with profitable or wholesome consciousness. So any kind of knowledge that arises, let's say, with unwholesome consciousness would not qualify as certain true wisdom from a spiritual point of view. Now, Early on it was mentioned that so, you know, the function of uh, wisdom is to illuminate the objective field. Each of the um, insight knowledges uh, will perform a certain you know, function. And, you know, and as such it will illuminate you know, the objective field. So when a meditator is uh, undertaking the contemplation of impermanence, and uh, you know, later on, you know, all of you will be you know, doing this, most likely, you know, then its function is to abandon the wrongful perception as uh, permanent. So thinking that, so, you know, or perceiving objects to be permanent. And then the contemplation of uh, unsatisfactoriness, dukkha nupasana, has the function of abandoning the uh, wrongful perception as uh, satisfactory or, well, taking objects uh, to be subject to pleasure or conducive to pleasure or happiness. And the function of anatta nupasana, namely the mindful contemplation of um, the non-self of formations, has the function to abandon the wrongful perception as um, possessing a self. And later on in the practice there is a knowledge or an aspect of wisdom that is known as the knowledge of disenchantment, and its particular function is to abandon delight. Now, as human beings, uh, strangely enough, we tend to delight tremendously in formations to an extent now, not just in the pleasant or pleasurable enticing objects, but even in you know, objects that uh, 
are somewhat unsatisfactory. So, you know, the mind has a tremendous uh, tendency you know, to uh, you know, well, you know, get enchanted with uh, you know, formations. As long as something comes up, uh, you know, this is uh, good enough. Or as long as the mind has something to play with, uh, this is good enough. It's better than nothing. And <laughs> and you will see later on what is uh, what is meant. And uh, again, another aspect of uh, wisdom is uh, you know, that of uh, the contemplation of danger. And its particular function is to abandon the adherence to formations due to attachment. And just to give you a brief uh, illustration for this, otherwise you might not uh, understand. And it's a worldly illustration. A person heavily addicted to smoking will be, um, not seeing the flaws of smoking, will be strongly or will have a strong attachment to smoking. And owing to the attachment, there will be a strong adherence to it. So um, being like in bondage to smoking, even if the person says, okay, by tomorrow I quit smoking, well, in most cases, our heavy smoker can do it and can give up the smoking, owing to the strong adherence. Now, um, upon seeing um, the flaws of uh, heavy smoking, maybe by you know, going through a hospital ward where you know, lots of uh, cancer patients uh, you know, lie in mostly people who you know, are smoking, um, our addicted smoker you know, may you know, change his or her mind. And so seeing the flaws of it, there'll be less attachment to the smoking and as a result of this, less adherence to it. The person will be less in bondage to the smoking. Likewise with formations. So once we see this, once we gain this knowledge of seeing the danger in formations, we'll be able to abandon this adherence due to attachment. Now, wisdom plays an important role in the context of the mental factors and in the context of consciousness or just the mind in general. And what do you think? When the mental factor of wisdom has arisen, will it be accompanied by unwholesome mental states or not? Will there be unwholesome mental states like uh, maybe restlessness? So we gain some insight knowledge and then we get all excited or agitated about it. Is this possible? Clearly you're saying no. So there's no way I can convince you otherwise. Good. So you're right. (laughs) So indeed... Indeed, when the mental factor of wisdom is present, it does not go along with any unwholesome mental state. So none of those uh, 
uh, unwholesome mental states like greed, hatred, you know, delusion, and then restlessness and so, you know, oh, moral you know, shamelessness and fearlessness of wrongdoing and so on and so forth. The list is uh, long. However, wisdom, whenever, um, whenever wisdom is present, the other 19 wholesome, um, wholesome or beautiful mental factors will also be present. However, um, wisdom is not always, not on all occasions, you know, present you know, together with uh, you know, the beautiful you know, factors. There are certain occasions when you know, the beautiful factors are there, but wisdom is not uh, present. And so, from an Abhidhamma point of view, we can say that wisdom panya, as a mental factor, arises in, in all jhanas and also in all path and fruition you know, consciousness, and then in some of the sense fear beautiful consciousness, so not rooted in greed, hatred, and delusion. And, and as I've stated, some and not all, so some are exempted. And furthermore, it's also uh, present in some sense fear resulting consciousness and in some uh, sense fear functional consciousness, gamma which are kriya jaitani. Now, the unfolding of uh, wisdom from a practical point of view, from a meditator's point of view, could be explained as certain follows. Namely, wisdom does not arise in a haphazard manner. Let's say you sit at the beginning of the retreat, you sit down, you close your eyes, and wisdom is there right away. This is rather unlikely, insight wisdom. And rather for an ordinary meditator, one has to go through a certain development which could be characterized by the following phases. Namely, first, a meditator has to well observe and come to know the material phenomena, predominant material phenomena. So, this then refers to the aggregate of materiality. The aggregate of materiality will be in the foreground. Now, shortly after this, the feelings tend to come into the foreground. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feelings. However, this doesn't mean that the material phenomena are all gone. They'll still be there. But the feelings are somewhat in the foreground. And then a meditator may find that the perceptions are somewhat more... Um, conspicuous, and so, so perception of uh, various kinds of sound, uh, sight sounds, and uh, so on. And so this then will be followed uh, by a phase during which the mental factors 
over all are more predominant. And this then would correspond you know, to the aggregate of mental formation, Sankara Kanda, in the Pali scriptural language. And it is when consciousness, the aggregate of consciousness, comes into the foreground that usually you know, the insight and the intuitive insight knowledge arises. Now, what we have here is a development from the coarser objects to increasingly more refined objects. Obviously, consciousness is not going to be as certain coarse as material phenomena. Consciousness, in fact, is extremely refined, and one can observe it only when the mind, the observing mind, is also quite sharp and refined. Now, this process of a development of a particular insight, knowledge over time, can be understood in this way only with some amount of practice. For you, it may not be all that obvious yet. However, if you do practice or meditate for several several months or maybe even over a period of several years, then gradually you might start seeing the more general pattern and you might see how each insight knowledge unfolds or seems to be unfolding along the line of the five aggregates. But please understand this as a general statement. There may be a few differences here or there. Now, also, when we look at the unfolding of wisdom with regard to an insight knowledge, then we may find that it is characterized furthermore by the three universal characteristics of anicca, dukkha, and anatta, namely impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and non-self. And so, so um, this too is not obvious right away, but later on, with more and more practice, one finds, well, you know, first one sees formations as changing you know, all the time, then their unsatisfactory characteristic comes into the foreground, and then usually the anatta aspect uh, is certainly predominant. And when we think of one insight knowledge, whatever the insight knowledge may be, then we can say that the actual intuitive uh, wisdom aspect arises only at the very end of the insight knowledge. So let's say if one insight knowledge extends over three, four, five days, then usually one has to develop it for a few days before the actual intuitive knowledge or the wisdom arises at the end. 
So it doesn't necessarily happen right away you know, during you know, the first you know, sitting, uh, you know, which is part of uh, the new uh, phase of one's practice. And so one needs to bring each insight knowledge to maturity. So we can distinguish here between an, an immature phase and a mature you know, phase. And to give you an example for this, during the first insight knowledge, a meditator has to, first of all, you know, deal with initial difficulties, you know, such as sloth and torpor, you know, wandering mind, and uh, has to you know, face certain uh, pains and uh, pains and aches, and uh, um, has to work with the you know, inability to stay with the rise and fall for a longer period of time, and so on. And so then the hindrances to progress tend to arise, and these two need to be overcome. And only once this has been accomplished does the actual insight knowledge or the intuitive wisdom aspect arise. But more on this later on. And for your general understanding of how you know, the practice unfolds, each and every insight knowledge that comes up you know, during the one's uh, the meditation will be characterized you know, by you know, certain you know, specific bodily you know, symptoms and specific mental you know, symptoms. So, um, during each insight knowledge, the sitting posture will be in a particular way, in a rather characteristic way, or the rising fawning will manifest in a rather characteristic way. So in one insight knowledge it's so-and-so, in another insight knowledge it's again different. And then comes to get a different or another insight knowledge, and again it will be a, a different story. And it is for this reason you know, that meditators are advised you know, to stay you know, with uh, the primary object, such as the you know, rising and fawning, you know, frequently, just to see this development over time, to kind of have uh, like a, uh, a red thread that goes through the whole practice. Once you have this, um, once you or when you practice in a in a systematic manner and you do pay attention you know, to the primary you know, object, how it changes over time, and then this will serve you as uh, kind of as a vipassana roadmap you know, for your you know, future you know, practice. And then it's relatively easy to know where one's practice is at, and once one knows that, then uh, it's also relatively easy to know what one needs to do next or how to address a certain situation. And again, as we've seen already in one of the earlier discourses, mindfulness itself, sati, may assume different, a different quality in in the different insight knowledges. Now, 
Now, some meditators are very eager to you know, have progress, and if things were you know, happening according to their you know, wishes, then you know, they'd be skipping many of the insight knowledges and right away going to, you know, towards uh, or right into you know, the goal. And uh, will this work? Uh, it will not work. And uh, you know, the way the practice unfolds is simply that as a meditator, you do need to pass uh, through you know, almost all of the insight knowledges, maybe except one or you know, two of those dukkha jnanas, you know, insight knowledges related to unsatisfactoriness. And, but otherwise, you know, you'll just have to you know, you know, cover you know, them. And the reason for this is that one higher insight knowledge is certain, will be dependent on the preceding one. So there is a causal relation between them. And so only upon bringing to maturity the preceding insight knowledge will the next insight knowledge arise. And it's kind of something like, uh, uh, well, you know, school children. A school child who uh, attains a certain grade will be transferred into the next grade only if he or she has passed all the necessary exams related to that certain particular grade. And if not, then it means, well, you have another turn. And so, same, so same thing in the meditation practice. So if you haven't digested you know, your Vipassana knowledge as yet, you know, then you get a chance or an opportunity to do it again. And so, so there's, please do understand, you know, there's a certain Vipassana you know, logic or a certain logic to you know, the Vipassana meditation, how it unfolds. And so we could also call it a Vipassana psychology um, in, in different, uh, different aspects. Now, a fascinating aspect of uh, you know, the unfolding of uh, wisdom is uh, that it seems to be conforming to what is known as the fractal theory. So it is a theory that, uh, are some of you familiar with this? Yes? You are? Someone? So fractal theory means uh, that the part is included in the whole, and the whole is included in uh, the part. But you will surely be familiar with something as mundane as foot reflexology. Now, (laughs) the governing principle of foot reflexology is that by pressing, by massaging a certain part of the foot, you will be exerting a certain influence on a respective inner organ, a part of the the body that corresponds to that part of uh, the foot. And so, even though the foot is small in size, yet it is said to contain the whole, namely all of uh, the body. 
The same thing can be said of the uh, of the eyes. There are specialists who, you know, simply by looking at the eyes, how you know the structure of the eyes, uh, you know, whether you know, one's health is okay or not, and so if there's a problem in which part of the body uh, the problem can be you know, found. So. Another very nice uh, uh, and holy illustration for fractal theory is a head of cauliflower. Now, you all know what a cauliflower looks like. So, it's something like, well, the top is like a a crescent, crescent moon, and then the bottom part is something like this, and then goes up like this. So, then... If we take, if we break off one piece from a, you know, from the head of a cauliflower, from a cauliflower, head of cauliflower, and then and then we look at it, and then what do we see? Another piece of cauliflower, namely a small piece, no, and it has it has, and that's the amazing thing. It has the same shape, and then. You take, and then you can break up, you can break off another, a tinier piece from that second piece, uh, from that first piece that was taken off uh, the head of cauliflower, and you look at that, and you will see what kind of a shape? Uh, The same shape, very much the same shape. So, um, in the whole is contained uh, the part. And in the part is contained the whole. And the same thing goes for the Vipassana insight knowledges. So, please, this take this only as a hypothesis. Don't believe what I'm saying. And so, you know, investigate for yourselves. And so do this maybe over you know, several months of uh, intensive or you know, uh, interspersed uh, daily practice, and you might find that uh, it is uh, true. So what could be, what can be said is, or what seems to be happening is, that within one single insight knowledge, uh, there are the other insight knowledges included. But this understanding becomes uh, accessible only after much practice. So you may not see it right away, but uh, eventually the understanding will be uh, yours. Now, once you know this, it's so much easier to do the practice. And uh, then a certain... A certain development in the practice that seems somewhat confusing starts making sense. And the reason why you know, teachers like the Venerable Sadhu Pandita Bhimamsa of Myanmar you know, keeps repeating his certain illustration of uh, a rope lying across uh, you know, a road uh, is uh, you know, you know, this, you know, the same um, reason. You know, or, or the reason for that has to do you know, with the fractal theory. Namely, when you look 
and uh, what looks like a, uh, like a you know, rope lying across a you know, road you know, from a distance, and then it seems to be a rope. But then when you go closer to it, and then you notice, oh, it's not a rope, but rather you know, there seem to be some insects crawling across the rope. And then, and, and with this you don't quite know yet, you don't know what kind of insects. Then, when you go even closer you know, to you know, this certain strange object lying across the road, you will see the individual ants crossing the road one by one. And this would be another case of a tremendous difference between the initial appearance or perception of an object and what one actually sees upon closer observation. So, um, in when when we first observe a particular insight knowledge, then it seems like rather compact, just one thing, but upon closer investigation, we might find that there are other things underneath. So, uh, once you look at the practice from the point of view of the fractal theory, it gets really fascinating. And then uh, there's no more reason for boredom to arise. (laughs) Now, what do you think? What's the nature of uh, the arising of wisdom? Insight knowledge, does it arise uh, instantly or does it, uh, or is it a, um, a well, um, a gift or a gift of grace or does it have to be developed gradually? You have to earn it, says Venerable Viranyani, uh, and I assume over time. <laughs> yes, indeed, is correct. And there's been you know, a longer discussion, especially here in the States, and you know, oh, um, mostly carried out you know, through the inquiring mind, uh, namely over the issue is this certain uh, Vipassana practice or does it have a gradual character or um, a more instantaneous certain character, an immediate certain character? And the answer to this is very simple. Namely, the development of the different insight knowledges uh, happens over time. It's a gradual process. But once all the preparatory work has been done, then the attainment of path knowledge is just a matter of one mind moment, one moment of consciousness, and that's all. And one moment of consciousness takes certain uh, uh, ages. <laughs> no, it does not. <laughs> it's a fraction of uh, of a mo- of a second. Now, when we look at the arising of knowledge over time, then we will find that at the beginning, 
we are actually accessing only the tip of the iceberg. And so it is so only through further practice, deeper practice, that we realize there is much more underneath you know, this iceberg, or much more underneath you know, what's, you know, yeah, that area you know, that is accessible to us. And as is the nature with icebergs, the tip is very small, but the part that is hidden under the surface of the water may be very big in uh, size. And likewise for uh, wisdom. So when, as our meditation deepens more and more over months and years of practice, we find that uh, an insight knowledge that early on would take just a couple of days may now spread out over many days, if not weeks. And it becomes extremely complex, and there's so many different aspects involved. So this is something for you to explore in the future. Now, also, from a practical point of view, oftentimes what happens is a meditator will gain a new insight knowledge, first by way of the observation or through the observation of the rising and falling movement of the abdomen. And then once this knowledge has been gained, then the sim- a similar understanding will be gained regarding other objects, such as a pain or you know, such as so maybe the seeing process or hearing process or with regard to you know, some predominant states and so on and so forth. So the scope of the wisdom then it becomes wider and wider, and it encompasses um, other objects apart from uh, the rising and falling movement of uh, the abdomen. And if it happens like this, then it's good to follow this uh, development. Now, there would be many other you know, things to say about wisdom, you know, wisdom and virtue, the relationship of wisdom and virtue, the relationship of wisdom and faith, the, the relationship of wisdom and concentration, but we simply don't have the time. And so let's go into the practicalities of uh, one particular aspect of uh, wisdom. Now, when a meditator like all of you, or almost all of you, um, undertakes this meditation practice and uh, practices the uh, restraints or or is grounded in the the precepts and then furthermore also uh, practices restraint of uh, the senses and then starts uh, observing you know, the primary object and certain other objects in a uh, mindful you know, manner, and then um, the following you know, may happen. Namely, at first, a meditator you know, comes to, or gradually a meditator comes into contact with the rising movement and falling movement of the abdomen, 
and so, so the mind you know, then start, you know, stays with the object for a longer period of time, and so, and then uh, a meditator uh, will you know, start to discern the rising movement from the fawning movement, and this is not obvious. Beginning meditators tend to lump together the rising and the falling as one. And sometimes they don't want to take the extra effort to make this separation. But it is worth the effort. And then, upon further observation, a meditator will also see that there is a gap or a pause between the rising movement and the fawning movement, and that there's also a gap between the fawning movement of the abdomen and the next rising movement. And this gap at times may be longer, at times may be shorter, it may change. And so, then a meditator will start discerning the specific sensations for occurring in the rising movement and the specific sensations occurring in the fawning movement. And those are not necessarily the same. Now, during the first few hours and first few days of uh, one's retreat, a meditator may, uh, and for the most part, or this concerns many of you, uh, may experience plenty of sloth and torpor and plenty of wandering mind. So this is rather common. And uh, it takes uh, quite a lot of uh, effort to overcome these initial difficulties. Then, having managed to do so, after a while, things turn somewhat, uh, well, uh, or the the, the practice takes an unforeseen development. Namely, difficulties arise in the form of the hindrances. And the hindrances are, the hindrances to progress are uh, the hindrance of sense desire, so wanting to look around, wanting to see you know, enticing objects, wanting to hear you know, sweet you know, sounds and voices uh, or music, and uh, then wanting to you know, smell some fragrance you know, scent and so on and so forth. The other hindrances are those of uh, ill will, the hindrance of sloth and torpor, the hindrance of restlessness and remorse, and finally, the hindrance of skeptical doubt. Now, these hindrances, as the name indicates already, hinder progress in uh, the Vipassana meditation. And they need to be overcome with, with mindfulness and with much patience, and in particular, they need to be suppressed with the help of concentration. Now, the way this happens is as follows. Initially, <coughs> sorry, initially the concentration will be somewhat weak, and so it will not be weak, not strong enough to overcome these hindrances. And 
oftentimes one hears meditators report during interview that they've been battling with some major pain sitting there for several, you know, maybe 20 minutes or 30 minutes, working with the pain, even sweating, and then eventually the pain is gone, and um, then the concentration is much stronger. Once this has happened, the hindrances are usually subdued, and with this then what arises instead? Hmm? Wisdom arises. Not Well, wisdom is down the road, but before this, <laughs> we're getting there. Calm arises. Yes, is correct. Wholesome mental states tend to arise, mostly in the form of calmness or peacefulness. And... Uh, or stillness of the mind, further accompanied by some gladness. Actually, it's first the gladness that arises. And gladness arises for two particular reasons. Namely, uh, one is glad, one feels glad because one has overcome you know, the strong pain, but one also feels glad because uh, one has overcome the hindrances which were giving a meditator so much trouble beforehand. And gladness then frequently, and what I'm saying is based on on the text, frequently leads to the arising of joy, which is a stronger form of uh, gladness. And then comes the peace and calmness. And this then will frequently be accompanied by uh, clarity of the mind. And when I ask during interviews, you know, when a meditator reports calmness, well, was the mind on the turbid side or on the clear side? Most you know, say uh, it's on the clear side. So that's quite uh, realistic. <coughs> Sorry. And once these wholesome mental states have arisen, then it's no difficulty uh, or no problem whatsoever for a meditator to you know, then gain the first uh, intuitive insight. And the first insight consists simply in the ability to discern physical phenomena you know, from mental phenomena, making the distinction between you know, materiality and mentality and not lumping everything together and thinking of oneself as one entire compact being uh, without any separation between mind and matter. So this intuitive understanding does usually not arise if one is not meditating. And so... However, it does arise through, um, well, a systematic development of one's uh, uh, meditation practice. And a meditator will then furthermore understand that the pain is a physical phenomenon So, in other words, rupa in the Pali scripture language, whereas 
labeling, observing, and knowing the pain is mentality. Our aspects of mentality of mind, uh, nama. And when we observe uh, in our meditation practice only physical phenomena and mental phenomena, then we come to which conclusion? There is no self. Yes, indeed. So, at least a temporary understanding of the absence of a self will arise. And this involves, furthermore, a certain disidentification from formations. So, when a pain arises, one no longer takes to it as my pain, but rather just a pain, just a process. The same thing goes for the rising and falling movement of the abdomen. It is no longer seen as my rising and falling, but rather just as a process, rising, falling, and that's all. And when it comes to anger, ideally, one sees it as my anger or just anger. Just anger. But if the anger is really strong, one may still relate to it as my anger. Now, with the attainment or with the realization of this first insight knowledge, can one be said, can a meditator be said to have uprooted the wrongful belief in the existence of the self once and forever? Uh, how nice would that be? <laughs> so, you're all opposing, and I'm happy about uh, this. So, it's a realistic, um, realistic answer, and the total eradication of the wrongful belief in the existence of a self uh, takes place only upon many days of hard work, going through many different insight knowledges, and then finally it comes with the attainment of the path knowledge connected to stream entry. Now, when a meditator for the first time in his or her life experiences in a very direct manner that there are only physical and mental formations occurring, and that there is no self, there are few meditators who go to the extent of crying. And they cry because they really feel sad about letting go of, or or seeing the ego departing. And once we had a meditator like this in Lumbini, So it is out of a fear of losing the self that the crying occurs. So when a meditator gains, correctly gains, this first insight knowledge, then he or she will no longer 
or at least to some extent, will no longer believe in the existence, uh, wrongful existence, of a permanent certainness self. Now, with the understanding of this first insight knowledge comes another aspect, namely that of the interdependence of formations. So, do you think that the mind by itself could do or could carry us through life? Is this possible? No. And the body by itself, could it carry us through life? No, obviously. And it is the mind that wishes, wants, desires, and so on and so forth. It's the mind that wants to see, hear, smell, taste, touch, and eat, and think. And so the body, can, it, so is the, can the body uh, want to see, want to hear? It cannot. But... Um, when body and mind work together in, and are interdependent, then uh, a human existence starts certainly to make sense. And this relationship between you know, mentality and materiality uh, is certainly illustrated by you know, the Venerable Buddha Gosa, the author or compiler of the Visuddhimagga, in a very nice way, namely the illustration of the stool crawling cripple and a man born blind, or uh, a man or woman born blind. Now, both of them wanted to go to reach a certain destination, but the blind man on his own couldn't reach the destination because he was blind. And the stool-crawling cripple, because of his invalidity, um, couldn't reach the destination either. But then, when the two of them got together, then the situation changed. And the blind man said to the stool-crawling cripple, Look, I can do things that you can't do, namely walk, but I cannot see and thus do not know whether the road ahead is rough or smooth. What if the two of us get together? What if you, the stool-crawling cripple, what if you climb on my shoulders and since you have eyes to see with, you then uh, give uh, give me directions, and this is what they do. And then, uh, with the stool crawling cripple on the shoulders of the blind man, piggy pack, uh, they start traveling, and the stool crawling cripple uh, announces, "Leave uh, the left, take the right. Uh, leave the right, take the left." And together they reach their destination. Likewise, you know, for mind and body. The mind by itself is powerless, the body by itself is also powerless, but when they work together, uh, then much can be achieved. Now, with the gaining of uh, this first uh, insight knowledge come 
at least two further uh, benefits. One is of a very simple nature, yet very important, namely the ability to distinguish or discern between what? We said this already. Apart from, in terms of mental states, No, 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 no. Mm-mm. Mental states. Wholesome and unwholesome. That's it. And see, most ordinary beings don't even, are not even very familiar with the term wholesome. So when you talk to them about wholesome mental states, they say, what are you talking about? And uh, they now, for them, it's certainly something uh, rather unheard of. Now, as meditators, having experienced, having gone you know, through a period where the unwholesome or where the hindrances are predominant, and those are clearly unwholesome mental states, and then having further experienced a number of the wholesome mental states in the form of gladness, joy, happiness, and certain calmness, and so on, clarity of mind, well, then the difference between the two becomes clear. The contrast becomes clear. And so with the first insight knowledge comes... Uh, at least an initial understanding or discernment between wholesome and unwholesome mental states. Once this knowledge has been gained, will we want to develop the unwholesome mental states further and further and further? Uh, Nope. But we want to develop the wholesome mental states more and more. And so, so this then means a new direction in our life. The mind is redirecting itself towards more and more wholesomeness. Now, the last benefit to be mentioned tonight is that which comes with the first insight knowledge is that of discovering intentions. The intention or the desire to do something, the wish to do something. Now, when you think of some young no, no person, a young adult, then his or her behavior will, in many cases, be characterized by impulsive behavior. So a certain thought arises in the mind, a certain impulse arises in the mind, and the person immediately goes and does what, or according to the impulse, or says things that later on. Uh, will be regretted. Now, not so for the meditators. A meditator by now will have discovered the intentions, will know that any major activity will be preceded by an intention and that simply by being mindful of an intention, labeling it, observing it, we don't have to act on it right away. And this gives a certain amount of freedom, namely freedom from uh, the bondage of uh, impulsive uh, behavior. And this makes a huge, huge difference in life. And it will save us many, um, many bad consequences 
of uh, well bad consequences that might arise if we uh, engage in impulsive uh, uh, or if we act on those uh, impulses. Now, uh, we're already be, uh, beyond the time, A32, so let me, con- let me conclude today's Dhamma talk by wishing that by seeing the difference between the path leading to wisdom and the path not leading to wisdom and understanding that through meditation practice intuitive wisdom can be gained. May you travel along this path of wisdom. May deeper and deeper levels of wisdom arise in your meditation practice. May these contribute to a transformation of your of your mind, of your way of seeing things, and ultimately may it lead to the highest form of wisdom that comes in the form of the attainment of path knowledge and fruition knowledge, and both of these take an extremely peaceful Nibbana as their object. And this is it for today. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.